As we lead up to Christmas, I will be preaching through the first two chapters of the Gospel of Matthew. These opening chapters introduce the birth of the promised King of the Jews, but they do so by emphasizing the humble beginnings of Jesus. Matthew maintains this tension between the royal and the rural, and between the glory and the humility of Jesus. We see this tension first in the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew chapter 1. And as we look at the opening six verses today, I want you to listen for breaks in the pattern. When an author breaks the pattern of a genealogy, he is trying to teach something. There is a reason that the author has gone beyond so-and-so, the father of so-and-so, the father of so-and-so, the father of so-and-so. Anytime that is broken, we should pay attention for there's a reason this has been inserted here. So after we get through the introductory verse, I want you to listen for six breaks in the pattern in Matthew chapter 1, verses 1 through 6. Let us come to God's Word today, Matthew Chapter 1, you can find this in your bulletin printed out or in the Pew Bibles. It's the very first verses in the New Testament. Matthew 1, 1 through 6. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez, the father of Hezron. And Hezron, the father of Ram. And Ram, the father of Amminadab. And Amminadab, the father of Nashon. And Nashon, the father of Solomon. And Solomon, the father of Boaz by Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth. And Obed, the father of Jesse and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. Amen. Let us pray. O Lord, we thank You for Your Word. Your Word contains many things. It has beautiful poetry. It has wonderful history. It has laws and teaching that are good. It has stories of miracles. And yet it also has some things that we are prone to skip over. Land allotments, census figures, and genealogies. We pray, O God, that You would help us to hear Your Word today, even from these verses, this list of names, that You, O God, might still speak and show us what Your Spirit is revealing to us through Your Word. God, I pray that You would use me in spite of my sin and my weakness to faithfully explain and expound Your Word and apply it to us, and that You, O God, might give us ears to hear. Open our hearts and minds and spirit, be working through Your Word today to accomplish Your good purposes. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, if you were listening closely, you may have heard the six breaks in the pattern. The first one mentioned was Judah and his brothers. Not just Judah, get a little brother mentioned there. And so that highlights that this Jesus comes from Israel. Those 12 tribes of Israel, Judah and his brothers. Another one of the breaks is that David gets called king. 
Not just because he's the first king in the genealogy, but it reminds us that Jesus is the promised king of Israel. But the other four breaks in the pattern are four women. Genealogies in the Bible are almost always male. You can compare this genealogy with the one the Gospel of Luke gives for Jesus. Just about all men in that one. And yet Matthew here includes these four women. He inserts the names of these specific four women. And so we're going to look more closely at these four women and how they reveal the heart of Jesus, our humble Savior. As we do so, I want to just draw your attention to the, the sermon outline and the bullets, and I've included a table. I don't normally do this, like tables and charts, but there's a little table in here just for you to, to categorize, to have in your mind who these women are. Where do we place them? What are their stories like? You may be, these stories may be unfamiliar or familiar to you, but just to give you an idea of who they are, I want you to, to see those as well. Well, the first woman mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus is not Abraham's wife, Sarah. It is not Isaac's wife, Rebecca. It is neither of Jacob's wives, Leah or Rachel. You might expect any of those noteworthy women to be given special attention by Matthew. But instead, Matthew inserts Tamar. As we heard in our Old Testament reading, the story of Tamar is not exactly one of those stories on which you look back fondly. It's the kind of story that understandably gets skipped in every single children's Bible for good reason. And yet Matthew specifically writes, Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. He wants to mention her. Tamar, as we look at her story, is primarily a victim. She marries Judah's firstborn son, Ur, hopefully not short for Eric. And this guy is described as wicked in the sight of the Lord. And so she's married to a wicked man who was likely wicked to her in some way. And the Lord struck him down. And so all of a sudden, Tamar is a widow, likely feeling conflicted between being freed from this wicked man but also being left a childless widow. Now, the custom in those days was that the brother-in-law of a childless widow would be obligated to impregnate this childless widow on behalf of his deceased brother. This is weird to us. And yet it was a godly act, not a sinful act. And Judah's second son, Onan, was supposed to do this. But he used Tamar repeatedly taking all of the pleasure without giving Tamar what she wanted. This was also described as wicked in the sight of the Lord, and God put him to death too. Widowed twice now, it seems. Violated multiple times. Judah promises that his other son, Shelah, will marry her when he grows to be old enough to marry. And so Tamar returns to live with her parents, ashamed and alone, And her only hope is that this third brother won't be as wicked. She has been with two wicked men. She has no children. She has been used and abused. She is a victim who has done nothing wrong to this point. 
But that changes after a number of years and Judah's promise goes unfulfilled and Shelah does not marry her. And so Tamar now takes the initiative trying to right the wrongs done to her by doing some wrongs herself. And so Tamar disguises herself as a prostitute, intentionally seducing her father-in-law. This is sinful. This is wrong. But more than that, I think it's just weird for us on so many levels. Instead of getting as far away from Judah's family as possible, Tamar keeps coming back to them. She's set on getting children from them. Because that was the way it was supposed to be done. Judah acknowledges this after he finds out what has happened. Though her means were sinful, her end, in a sense, was godly. It's why Judah later says, she is more righteous than I. And so while we could consider Genesis 38 and what the story of Tamar teaches, what I want us to do is consider more specifically what Tamar's inclusion in Matthew's genealogy teaches. Why doesn't Matthew just write, Judah, the father of Perez, Perez, the father of Hezron? He could have written that. Matthew wants to emphasize Tamar's story of abuse and shame and desperate sin to show that it did not exclude her from God's family. You who feel shame about how others have treated you in the past, know that Jesus says you can be in His family. You can be safe with Him. He will take away your shame from being a victim of the sins of others. He wants you to know you are welcome at His table. He will not abuse you, and He will love you better than anyone could. The same goes for those people who have sought the right thing in the wrong way. For those of us who have hurt the people who have hurt us. You may have tried to get even and inflict pain on those who have hurt you, but know that Jesus can forgive your sins and heal your pain. That He can and will bring the right justice in the right way at the right time. Give up your bitterness. Turn from your desire for revenge and let Jesus handle it as your King. And let Him cleanse you and welcome you as a member of His own family. I'm thankful that Tamar is mentioned here because it assures people like Tamar that they are not too polluted by sin to be excluded from the family of God. They can be part of his family tree. The second woman mentioned in the genealogy is Rahab, whose story is told in the book of Joshua. Rahab is a Canaanite woman who lived in the city of Jericho. The Israelites were encamped nearby And they were about to begin their conquest in the promised land. And number one on their list was Jericho. Rahab had heard the stories about what God had done by bringing his people out of Egypt. She had heard about the parting of the Red Sea. She had heard about their victories over the Amorite kings. She even knew that God had promised Israel the whole land of Canaan. Rahab had heard the word of the Lord and wanted to join the people of God. It is very clear that Rahab is meant to be seen as an example. She heard the word of God 
And she believed the word of God. As our New Testament reading says, Rahab acted in faith by protecting the Israelite spies. She trusted their word. She hung this scarlet thread out her window so that she and her family would not be destroyed when Israel came and killed them in battle. And so here is a picture of a foreign woman with greater faith than many Israelites. And it makes you wonder why Christians today don't name their daughters Rahab. Well, even though Rahab is a godly example commended to us on two occasions in the New Testament, she is still a sin-stained individual. Five of the eight times that she is mentioned in the Bible, she is called Rahab the prostitute. In fact, just reading the New Testament reading a moment ago, it sounds weird when you say it all together. By faith, Rahab the prostitute. You know, that just doesn't sound right. She had a sinful past. The kind of sinful past that is unseemly and shameful and immoral. And yet, she believed in God. Her sinful occupation did not keep her from exercising faith. A sinner came to believe in the living God. And it is fair to presume that she gave up her occupation after joining God's people. And so Rahab is a living example of 1 Corinthians 6 verses 9 through 11. Paul gives this list of sinful activities saying these things will keep you from God. But then he writes... And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Rahab's inclusion in the genealogy of Jesus is a reminder that people with all sorts of sordid sins in their past are welcome in God's family. Maybe you were out this weekend Black Friday shopping and you saw this great deal. And then in the fine print just below, it says some exclusions apply. You're like, That's a bummer. Guess what? That is not the case with Jesus. If you come up here, there is no fine print under the cross that says some exclusions apply. He came to save sinners and no specific brand of sinning is excluded from salvation in the gospel. If that's the case, then we should be a church family where any type of sinner is made to feel welcome at the cross. For Jesus' blood can atone for any sin. All we do is call those sinners to repent of those sins and to believe in our Savior. I am thankful Rahab is mentioned here in the family of Jesus because it assures people like Rahab that no category of sin will exclude them from the family of God. They are welcome. The third woman mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus is Ruth, whom you can read about in Ruth. She is another foreign woman from the Moabite people. That when an Israelite family came and lived in Moab, Ruth married one of their sons. But before Ruth and her husband could have any children, her husband died. And so like Tamar, Ruth was a childless widow. But unlike Tamar, there were no living brothers in the family to give her a child. Like Rahab, Ruth was a foreign woman who trusted in the Lord. 
she stuck with her mother-in-law, Naomi, who was also a widow, and they returned home to the land of Israel in poverty. Ruth took care of her mother-in-law by gathering leftover grain that the harvesters dropped, and she learned that one of these fields that she was gleaning from belonged to a relative of her deceased husband. Ruth then took the initiative to seek aid for herself and Naomi. And once she saw that this Boaz, this man, was a godly man, she went further. She boldly suggested that Boaz marry her. Like Tamar, Ruth desired children from a close relative to continue the family line of her deceased husband. But unlike Tamar, Ruth went about it the right way. She found a godly man who not only was able to give her a child, but who in abundant and steadfast love cared for both her and her mother-in-law, Naomi. Ruth's story is the least shameful of the four women. She is clearly a godly woman who is guiltless throughout the story. And she's an example for us, which is why Christians today still name their daughters Ruth and not Tamar or Rahab. And we read the genealogy, and to us today, it makes like total sense. I want a Ruth in my family tree. I want someone like that that I can look back on. But why would Matthew include Ruth, this godly woman, as opposed to Sarah, Rebecca, or one of those other godly women? Why include her with these three other women with obviously more shameful pasts? Well, one reason that Ruth's story is a little unsavory is that she is a Moabite. According to Genesis 19, the Moabite people started from incest. In fact, that story in Genesis 19 is eerily similar to Genesis 38, where Lot's own daughter tricked him into impregnating her. And the child of that incest was named Moab. Later in the Bible, in Deuteronomy 23, it says, No Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord to the tenth generation. And so Moabites were outcasts from God's people. They did not belong. And yet Matthew is like Ruth. She belongs. The great-grandmother of David was a Moabite. And I don't care who knows it. Yes, Ruth's family history and her ethnicity may have given her reason to be ashamed. Yes, many in Israel in those days may have looked down on her. But what mattered far more than her heritage was her faith. She acted boldly by faith. And the Lord blessed her accordingly. Ruth acted less like her Moabite ancestor who tried to get a child through immorality. And Ruth instead trusted the Lord to provide acting obediently and patiently and giving us a godly example to follow. So I, for one, am thankful that Ruth is mentioned here because it assures us that no matter our family background, anyone who trusts in the Lord will not be excluded from the family of God. And that brings us to the fourth woman mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus, Bathsheba, though Matthew calls her the wife of Uriah. By calling her that, he is highlighting the sinful origins of the union between David and Bathsheba. And you can read about it in 2 Samuel 11, not 2 Kings 11, as I mistyped in the bulletin. 
Bathsheba was a woman married to Uriah the Hittite. And it's possible she too was a Hittite, but we don't know for sure. Uriah and Bathsheba seem to have no children when Uriah goes off to battle with Israel's army, not against, but as part of Israel's army. Now, sadly, this is one of these stories that has been misrepresented sometimes in church. It has been suggested that Bathsheba is a lonely woman yearning for love who bathes naked on her roof, hoping to attract the attention of a man or perhaps specifically King David. That is not what the Bible says. The text is abundantly clear. Bathsheba was bathing because she was purifying herself from her uncleanness. This tells us that she was not bathing to be seductive, but to be holy, to be obedient to God. But that didn't stop David from seeing her, inquiring about her, sending for her, and taking her to bed. This is a clear example of a powerful man using his power to have his way with a woman who had no ability to resist. There is no indication in 2 Samuel that Bathsheba wanted this affair. She is a victim in this story and not a temptress. David abused his power and coerced this married woman into adultery. Bathsheba became pregnant with David's child and she notified him. And this led to David orchestrating the death of Uriah, the death of Bathsheba's husband, when he couldn't cover up his sin. And so Bathsheba now is a widow, pregnant with the child of the man who not only took advantage of her, but the man who made sure her husband was killed. If you thought things couldn't get worse for Bathsheba, 2 Samuel 12 tells us that the child she was pregnant with died when he was seven days old. Before David saw her, Bathsheba was a godly woman married to an honorable man. She's an innocent victim in this story. She's grieving her purity, her husband, and her child. Now, we understandably look at this story typically through David's perspective because, well, that's how it's told in 2 Samuel. But when you try to look at it from Bathsheba's perspective, it's heartbreaking. And so Matthew includes Bathsheba to show that even the godly suffer. Even the innocent can be ashamed of their past. Even when you have done nothing wrong, you can be tainted by the sins of others. This kind of abuse and grief that Bathsheba suffered is sadly shared by too many people today. There are too many women who have been victims of abuse. Too many women who have sought to be faithful but who have suffered nonetheless. But Matthew mentions her as a reminder that God knows People like that exist. And he is not ashamed to say that they can belong to his family. He tells us that he will not use his power to harm, but to heal and to hold us tight in his loving embrace. 
And so I am thankful that Bathsheba is mentioned because it assures us that God will comfort those who have been hurt and abused by those more powerful than them, and He will not exclude them from being part of His family. The stories of these four women whom Matthew mentions may seem to bring dishonor to the name of Jesus. They may seem like part of your family tree that you want to ignore or just prune off. Matthew will not do that. He will not silently ignore the reality of their pain and as well as their righteousness of their actions. As uncomfortable as it can make us, Matthew is willing to shine the light on those places, on the stories of those four women, to show us that no one will be excluded from the family of God because of their past sin and shame. We know this to be true because of Jesus. Because at the end of this genealogy, Jesus was born. Jesus entered into that family to that family tree with the DNA of those sinful and broken men and women to save men and women like them, like us. He came to atone for our sin. He came to cleanse us of our shame, for we all have sinned. And Jesus faithfully forgives us when we repent and trust in Him. And He cleanses us of the shame that we bear. Shame for our own sins. Shame for how others have sinned against us. Shame from the sins of our family. He knows how that shame makes us feel, and He wants to cleanse us of that dirty feeling, assuring us that we belong to Him, that He delights in us, that we are loved in His sight. If you are weary with your sin and shame today, come to Jesus. Come and find forgiveness. Come and know His tender love. Come and receive Him as your humble Savior. Let us pray. Lord, we thank You that You know. You know the hurt we feel. You know the hurts that have been inflicted on us. You know the hurts that we have caused others. You know it all, and yet still, the Gospel goes forth as a free invitation to all that whoever believes in Jesus will not perish, but have eternal life. That whoever applies to all, whatever we've been through, whatever we've done, whatever's been done to us. And so we ask, O God, that You would help us to hear the freeness of that Gospel message and that hope that is found in Christ. May we know Your love through the comforting presence of the Holy Spirit assuring us that we are welcome with You. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.